All right. Uh, we could title this morning's message, The Rape of Dinah. Uh, we could title it, The Problem of Rape, or we could title it, The Christian Apologetic of Rape. And you'll see what I mean as we go along. But we have come to that place in Scripture, and Genesis is a book of firsts. Firsts. We've come to that place in Scripture where the first rape takes place and is historically recorded in the Word of God. And so the rape of Dinah, the problem of rape, and or the Christian apologetic of rape. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis 34, and we will read the chapter together and then look at the details thereof. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you, if you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem and Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city, and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal theirs be ours. Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, 
that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives. They took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious amongst the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and will kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? And that is the end of the account of the rape of Dinah. Back to the beginning. Verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Let's start there. Dinah was the daughter of Leah, not Rachel. Rachel was the favored wife. Sadly, Leah was, in many ways, the second wife, the secondary wife, the afterthought. The Behold, it was Leah. Disappointment. And Leah was always in the shadow of Rachel. And so perhaps her daughter was as well, although this does seem to be the only daughter of Jacob, who is now Israel. And so perhaps she is the favored daughter, favored by all, father and mother and the whole family. Hard to tell. And this is another text where commentators are just all over the place. Some of them making, in my estimation, wild judgments. And it's hard for me to make too many exact judgments in this narrative account. I need more details to make more exact judgments. And so we know that she is the daughter of Leah, born to Jacob, and she went out to see the daughters of the land. Again, this is a place where many make wild judgments. It may well be true that she went out as many young ladies go out, going places they should not go with intentions they should not have, or perhaps not even bad intentions, but just going unwisely to hang out with people that are going to affect her life and or her safety in ways that she has not thought through. And so I'll not indict her for going out to see the daughters of the land. I'll not say that she knew she was going out to be amongst the young men and to be beheld by them and to enjoy their lustful gaze. That would be extra biblical commentary, not justified by the text. Verse 2, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Although I have suggested, as most suggest, that this is rape, the text is not certain. It is almost certain. It is very likely that it was rape. He took her, he lay with her, and he violated her. That is true in the biblical sense. That is true whether it was fornication or whether it was actually rape. What does it mean that he took her? Was it against her will Or was it willing? Hard to know for certain. But he saw her, he took her, he lay with her, and he violated her. And I do want to say, not as an indictment on her for going out to see the daughters of the land, but I do want to say there's a danger 
and going out without any parental oversight and going out without any checks or balances, without any controls, without any protection. There's a danger in that and that our modern system of dating is fraught with that danger. Certainly our modern concept of what they call clubbing, going out to clubs, drinking, dressing immodestly and dancing in that attire is certainly going to set one up to be observed by ungodly men and taken, he took her and he lay with her and he violated her in any which way it is a violation. It's just to what level is it a violation? Is it an actual non-consensual rape or is it a violation in that he was not wed to her, was not her lawful husband before God and men? In our culture, we encourage such behavior. We encourage the young ladies to go out. We encourage the young men to go out. We encourage them to use drugs and alcohol to lower inhibitions and put themselves at great risk. And tragically, in our culture, uh, we encourage this behavior, and then sometimes the young ladies don't even come back. They don't even return. They're never heard from again. And we know far too many tales of horror that resulted because of that concept of just being able to go out and have fun and the idea that that's one's right and one's liberty and we should expect it and encourage it even. It's it's like a rite of passage. It's just foolishness and wickedness. And it ends terribly every time. It's just how terrible is it going to end? Is it going to end with with drunkenness and a car accident? Is it going to end with drunkenness and looking and lusting and some level of sexual immorality? Is it going to end with fornication? Is it going to end with abduction and rape and escape? Is it going to end with abduction and rape and a nightmare from which there is no escape? It's just how far is the sin going to take you? But what we must return to as Christian men, women, young men, young women, fathers, mothers, and a whole society is the truth of God's Word that sin takes you further than you want to go and it costs you far more than you want to pay and it may keep you much, much, much longer than you want to stay. The wage of sin is death. Sometimes that death comes very quickly. And this sin did produce death. Now, not her death. But it did produce death. A whole lot of death came because of this sin. There is a whole lot of murder that comes because of looking, lusting. No, let's back up. Because of, and I'm not indicting Dinah, I don't know. But because of immodesty, because of immodest behavior, because of looking, lusting, the sexual immorality that follows, whether it's fornication or adultery or rape, and then it graduates to murder. And rape often graduates to murder because they have to cover up their crime. They don't want to go to jail. And so one sin begets another. In our society, we have people ready to rush in constantly to say, she did nothing wrong. She's only a victim. And while I don't want to be insensitive when someone is a victim, no, I don't. I do want to be wise enough to, after the fact, at an appropriate 
distance from the fact, an appropriate distance from the grieving family, to be able to say that that is unwise living. That is a foolish plan for, for that precious young lady's life that resulted in a nightmare. Why don't we change the plan? Why don't we rewind the tape a bit back to the beginning and say, hey, let's do something different. Let's send a brother with her out to meet the young ladies. Let's, as mom and dad, go out to meet the community together. But let's not send her off alone. The vast majority of the stories that you will hear that, that come out of police reports involve a young lady being alone. As a rule, she was alone. She was alone, either from the beginning to the end, or she went off alone. Often with a man or young men that they just met, that they don't know at all. And that's exactly what takes place here. It seems that she went alone. She's the only daughter. She goes off to meet these daughters. She doesn't know the daughter's character. And then she meets this prince of the land. He's a prince, no doubt handsome. It's all going to be great. But it wasn't great. It was horrible. Sin brings suffering and death. Some years ago, Kent and I were going door to door on a Friday night, knocking on the door, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We came to one house, and there clearly was a party. And party houses can be great gospel opportunities. I've had amazing times where one by one, each person in there comes to the door to get the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can also be places of persecution where they just mock you and and on you go to the next house. So you never know what's going to happen. When you come up, you see all these cars, hear this loud music, and you don't know what's going to happen. What happened to this house was utterly unique. It was a house full of 20-something-year-old men and one young lady. One young lady. And there was something off there in the whole deal. And we shared the gospel briefly. They mocked. And the young lady contended for us a bit. Now, she wasn't a believer, but she didn't like the level of mockery, and somehow she identified with us. I don't remember the details exactly, but it closed up fairly quickly, and we left with an admonition to repent, confess Christ as Lord, and be saved, and we moved on. A short time later, now, this is in the winter. It's dark. It's night. A short time later, we see this young lady out on the street, and she's coming to us rapidly, and she says, can I stay with you? I, I don't feel safe. I, I'm, I need to escape. I need to get out of here. I'm brand new here to Portland. I just got here today or yesterday, whatever it was. And I met one of these guys and he invited me to a party. And I said, great. And I came on the train and then a bus and, and there are no other women here. And this is feeling very, very unsafe. And so we said, absolutely, you can stay with us. And we took her to the bus station, and we admonished her to flee from sin and death and hell and to never put herself in this position again. This night could have ended oh so differently for you, young lady. But in God's grace, he sent two men to love all of you, but to love you and perhaps rescue you from a nightmare and death. Because nobody in this whole city knows you, and nobody that you know knows where you are, and they know it. 
Praise God for his grace on that young lady. Who knows what we interrupted? And over the years, I have interrupted a lot going out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, both on the streets and house to house, sometimes to my great joy. Rape interrupted. Let's interrupt it before we get anywhere near it by saying, hey, that pattern of life is foolish. Let me go a step further. A woman going out to the woods alone is a victim. It's not brave. It's waving a flag to evil men who go out there for that very purpose. There is no law in the woods except the law you bring. Now, if she's well-armed, that's a different issue. Even then, predators look for single women in lonely places. At night, on the streets, in the woods, and then terrible things happen. And so let's believe, God, that mankind and men are basically evil. And that without the lights on and eyes on, evil things happen. And let's protect our ladies, young and mature. Let's protect our ladies from evil men. So first off, I say, where is dad? Secondly, I say, where are the brothers? A good brother, a wise brother would say, right, Dinah, I'll come with you. A good father would say, um, Simeon, Levi, you're going with her. A good father might say, you're not going at all. I don't know these young ladies. We don't know this culture. We just got here. We need to feel some things out. I'm not just going to send you out there and hope for the best and perhaps never see you again. Today's parents are fools. Wicked fools. And they set their daughters up to be unpaid prostitutes and rape victims. How sad. God rebuke them. God rebuke them. May we not be found amongst them. He saw her. He took her. He lay with her and violated her. And that is the history of the world. That's the evening news. That is a million crime reports. And it will not be stopped until Christ returns and puts evil beneath his foot. And so know the world you live in. Know what men are except by the grace of God. They're exactly that. Verse 3, His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. Now, this is not love. The Bible is not saying that this is genuine love. But he claimed to love her. Oh, I love you. No young man that uses and abuses a young lady like this or any woman like this loves her. It is hatred. It is self-love. It is sin. When you involve another person in the sin of fornication or the sin of adultery, or worse, you rape them. No, that's not love. That's just evil. It's wickedness. And so he loves her. No, he, he has not loved her at all. God defines love. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Thus saith the Lord. That is the definition of love. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Verse 4, so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. What do you see about this Shechem? Shechem is a, a prince in a pond here. He's a, he's a big fish in a little pond, and he gets what he wants. 
and he takes what he wants. And he prays no price for it, so he thinks. And, you know, as a word to the wise or the unwise, Shechem, sometimes you don't get what you think you're going to get. You get what you deserve. And Shechem gets what he deserves. Now, we'll discuss that later. (laughs) Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. And we need to leave that in his hands. But this does not end well for Shechem either. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, While the sons were filled with grief and fury, Jacob was passive and could not pull things together. Perhaps if Dinah were his daughter by Rachel rather than by Leah, he would have acted differently, and then perhaps so. In verse 5, we, we find that Jacob hears about this, but he, he like holds back. Jacob heard that he, Shechem, had de- defiled Dinah, his daughter, now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with them. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field, and when they heard it, the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriage Marriage is with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves so you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. And so a disgraceful thing, a, a shameful thing. We, we live in a shameless culture. There is no shame. There's no disgrace. We are so anti-shame. It's come into the church, right? And now immodesty is everywhere. Immodesty as a rule is everywhere, right? You go to most churches and you'll see way too much of another man's wife and another man's daughter. You'll be seeing her belly and her backside and her chest. And that should be reserved for her husband, her future or present husband and him alone. But as a rule, we've allowed this in Christ's church. And the Word of God says, no, make no provision for the flesh. The Word of God says, no, adorn yourself with all modesty and shamefacedness. You're not putting the wares on display for the world. That is wicked. We have lost the idea of shamefacedness. Of any sin, whether it's the sin of immodesty or the sin of lusting. You know, men look with lust. Men men put bumper stickers in their cars that tell you what a wicked, lustful dog they behave as. They're so proud of it, they put it on their car. And what's worse, not only do we boast our selves, our bodies, not only do we boast our lust, we boast our fornication, we boast our adulteries, we boast the murder of our unborn children, that are the result of our fornications and our adulteries. We are a shameless society. We need to learn again the disgrace of sexual immorality. It's a disgrace. It's a shame. And people need to feel it so they avoid it because it brings death and destruction. Oh, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. Really? 1.3 billion murdered babies since 1980 globally is not that big a deal. Really? The epidemic of STDs we have going on in the world is not that big a deal. Really? The countless number of AIDS babies in Africa due to fornication and adultery amongst the African population is no big deal. Really, the, the monkeypox is no big deal. Seems like it's the newest nightmare in the news. But they won't tell you 
the subset of society that that nightmare is flowing from, the homosexual community. And so we need to revive shame. We need to revive the reality that sin is disgraceful and that sexual sin is disgraceful. And that shame and sense of disgrace protects us. It protects us. Now, praise God for His forgiveness. Praise God in His mercy. There's forgiveness and we're made white as snow and we don't have to walk around with scarlet letters for our past sin of any sort or kind. And yet that shame protects us from going down that road of destruction. When we throw off all that shame, we have what we see today in our culture, what we don't want to see, a pornographic, sexually insane culture. And you know who's getting hurt the most in this culture? Girls. Second, boys. Third, women. And yes, fourth, men. But everybody gets hurt because the wage of sin is death. And the adult perverts are waging war primarily on girls, secondarily on boys. And our entire culture is waging war on women from every angle. And our unregenerate, unsaved women have lost their minds. I mean, I almost wish they would return to feminism, right? Stand up. (laughs) Say no. We're not going to be sex objects. But now it's we're liberated to be sex objects. We're liberated to be lust objects for men behaving like dogs. So the story continues. I'm not going to read it all in its details. I can't go verse by verse with the time we have and cover what I need to cover on the broader level. The brothers plot. The brothers deceive. The brothers bring the name of God into their deception, into their plot. You know, we can't covenant with you. You know, God wouldn't allow it unless you become circumcised like us. And they get on board. They sell it to everybody in town. And and, uh, they get on board. They all get circumcised. And on the third day, uh, when their wounds are healing and they're not ready for combat, Simeon and Levi come to town and take care of business. Only they don't kill Shechem. They don't kill Shechem and his father. They kill everybody and take everything. That is an injustice. Two wrongs do not make a right. Injustice upon injustice does not equal justice. Rape plus murder do not equal justice. Not then. Not now. Jacob says, You've troubled me by making me obnoxious amongst the inhabitants of the land. They respond, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? And both are right. You should not have done this thing. You should not have slaughtered them all. You're making me obnoxious amongst the inhabitants of the land. They're going to say, Look, they're murderers, these Israelites. And should he treat our sister like a harlot? No, he shouldn't treat our sister like a harlot. Now, what I think... Again, I I don't have perfect knowledge of the entire situation, but based upon the idea, which seems to be accurate, that he raped Dinah, I believe he should have been put to death. They should have held a trial of sorts and demanded his life and put him to death to protect all the other daughters of the community and to give her peace that her rapist is no more. 
and to be a warning to all the other young men, prince or not, powerful or not, that there are laws. And young ladies, or any lady for that matter, will not be violated because they're created in the image of God and they are precious. What they did was take vengeance into their own hands and take it far and wide and a great many died, which to Shechem in one sense is justice (laughs) in that God is sovereign and so your sin will find you out, his sin found him out. It was not justice in the sense that they did not have the right to wipe them all out. But the law of God, not yet given when this took place, the law of God sanctions the death penalty for rape. And I stand by that law wholeheartedly. I stand by that law dogmatically. I stand by that law in my heart. I stand by that law in my mind. I stand by that law in that I would pull the lever, pull the trigger. Rapist should be put to death. We'll come back to that. Deuteronomy 32, 35 The Lord speaking says, vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. I would offer that both as a curb to your vengeance and as a comfort that God will bring vengeance upon the wicked. God will bring justice upon evildoers. Sometimes in a wicked world where incredible atrocities take place, there's this overwhelming sense of injustice. How can this be? Well, it won't be. God is a just judge. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. Their judgment will come. Their judgment will come. And it will be meted out perfectly. You need not worry about vengeance. It's coming Judgment is coming. Now there's also this. Except for the grace of God, you would be the perpetrator of the crime and not the victim. Except for the grace of God, you would be the one people were wanting vengeance to fall upon. And so in that, as Christians, we should also desire mercy that they might come to repentance and faith. Now, I can mix the two perfectly, both in my heart and my mind. I can want vengeance from the hand of God. I can want justice. I can take satisfaction in justice and also pray for repentance. Pray that they might bend their knee and confess Christ as Lord and be saved before the noose, before the sword, before they breathe their last breath. Romans 12, the New Testament, verse 19, says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, that is a universal truth that does not have universal application. God's not commanding the mother and father of daughters that have been abducted and raped and or murdered to have the rapist over for dinner. And I've heard wicked men in God's name say stupid things like that. 
That is what I call hyper-spiritual foolishness. Now, that is a general application. Yes, generally, those that wrong you, those that do evil upon you, yes, generally, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Notice that the end of that says, uh, for in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. So it's not entirely merciful. It's giving them over to the judgment of God and not taking judgment in your own hands. Enough on that. That is a subtopic in this message and I think in this text. Perhaps we can come back to that issue another day, the issue of vengeance. I'm sure we will. But let me say this. Rape has become a a real topic in my life because I minister the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ at abortion clinics for the saving of souls and the rescue of the unborn. And the go-to argument, other than the middle finger, which is no argument at all, but the go-to argument is rape, rape, rape. What about rape? Or even I was raped on occasion. That is spoken. That is a go-to argument. That is their apology, their defense for the murder of the unborn child. And as I said earlier, two injustices do not make justice. Murdering the unborn child is not the solution to the rape. If it is genuinely rape, then that mother is a victim. She's a victim. But her baby is not the criminal. Her baby committed no crime. Nor is her baby an accident nor is the rapist the author of the life of the baby. God is the author of all life. The baby is precious. The baby's life is ordained by God for the glory of God. And it's certainly understandable that a mother may not be able to raise her child if the child was conceived in rape. I can understand that. And that child may well need to be given up for adoption. But hear me, it will not help that mother to go from the position of victim as a rape victim to the position of victim and murderer. That will not help her psyche. That will not help her conscience. That will not help her soul. That will not help her human thriving. That will in no way bless her. And so out of love for her, the victim, I want her to remain only a victim and not become a criminal before God, not become a murderer before God. I don't want her both to have to deal with the pain of being so violated by such a wicked man and then the pain of her own guilty conscience and should she not repent the wrath of God forever as a murderer of her own child. And so rape is no defense for abortion. Rape is no defense for the murder of a child. In fact, rape is very similar to abortion. And that rape is doing to another human being's body what they have not consented to be done. They have not signed off on this. And abortion is one human being doing to another human being's body what they have not consented to, what they have not signed off on. And so I ask the question at the abortion clinic, often when they bring up rape, I say, is rape wrong? And they'll often become indignant when I ask that question. Oh, you don't believe rape is wrong? No, no, I do believe rape is wrong. I'm asking you, 
do you believe rape is wrong? Well, of course I believe rape is wrong. And then my next question, why? Why do you believe rape is wrong? Based upon what standard? And in the Portland area, where sadly most of the people I'm talking to profess to be atheists, they've denied their creator. They have thus denied any ground to stand on to condemn any sin, including rape. In fact, the Big Bang cosmology evolutionary origin story makes rape right. Rape is the moral thing to do. Survival the fittest. If I am fit enough and strong enough to go and conquer, well, then I'm, I'm increasing the strength of the species. Consent is not required. And your disposition, your moral stand against rape, well, that's, that's just your personal proclivity. That's just your personal discomfort, which I care nothing about and I have no ground to care about because we're, we're just evolved accidents, cosmic accidents, right? Meaningless, purposeless, cosmic accidents that began with a big bang and no one to light the match even. We don't know how that big bang happened or the stuff that went bang. Where did that come from? Ex nihil, nihil fit, nothing comes from nothing. It defies all logic. And then we have a, a cold, lifeless universe that's inexplicable because it came from nothing. But then we have life spontaneously erupting in it. Life from non-life, violating the law of biogenesis. We have no scientific evidence of such a thing. But we demand that all life came from non-life. And then we demand that all complex life came from so-called simple life contained in a single cell that originally was an accident, but over millions and millions and millions and millions of years evolved into what we call human beings, which are really just glorified apes, which really means we're just animals. And you know what happens in the animal kingdom all the time? Do you ever go outside? You ever watch Mutual of Omaha? Do you know what goes on in that duck pond? Rape and murder every day, all day. And cannibalism. Pigs eating pigs, rabbits eating rabbits. Rabbits eating their own offspring. If we're just animals, then you have no ground to stand on to condemn any of this. How tragic for you. I can stand on the Word of God. I can stand on Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image, male and female. He created them. And thus I can say, You're an image bearer of God, not an animal. You have an eternal soul. You're created for the glory of God in the image of God. We stood in the park a few months ago arguing with these people who were out there to spread the good news of stop having kids. It was don't have kids evangelism day. They had tracks, they had signs, they had t-shirts. And we engaged them and they could not differentiate between a child and a squirrel. In fact, they couldn't differentiate between the woman standing there who was with them and a squirrel. They couldn't decide whether they would stop the car from running over the squirrel or the woman because it's a moral equivalency. The squirrel is just as valuable as the woman. That is where this Big Bang cosmology evolutionary worldview ends. Madness. And they haven't realized it yet. They, they still want to hold on to things like rape is wrong. But no, without God, rape isn't wrong. It's survival of the fittest. It's strengthening the species. 
I mean, that is what goes on in the wild. It is the strongest lion that reproduces. And he reproduces with whatever female he wants to. And it makes for a strong pride. Why do the deer and the elk and the rams, you ever watch those rams go at it? My goodness, they're going to bash their brains out over and over and over again until finally the old ram walks off, having been defeated by that new, young, studly ram. He walks off, and this ram takes over, and then he reproduces. Survival of the fittest. So if all we are is animals, then they have no grounds to complain against anything they would say is morally wrong. But because we're not animals, because we're creating the image of God for the glory of God, we can stand against such evil. A Gospel Coalition article titled Speaking Truth in Love, Should Christians Use Gender-Neutral Pronouns, written by Dr. Stephen West, asks this question. Does a Christian have the liberty to say, I'm a Christian and I believe that God created people as either male or female. I need to honor God, but I'm willing to honor your wishes in regards to being called Z because I want to have an ongoing relationship with you and I want to be able to tell you more about the love of God in Jesus Christ. Does a Christian have the liberty to discern which approach is most likely to give opportunities for the gospel to gain an audience? If people we meet in the transgender community are convinced that Christians are hate-filled bigots, homophobic, and transphobic, do we need to take our stand immediately on the issue of gender-neutral pronouns? Or is that a secondary issue on which we can be flexible so that we have more opportunity to share the gospel? Stephen D. West, the lead pastor at Crestwick Baptist Church in Ontario also an adjunct professor at the Heritage Seminary, I said Seminary, Seminary, and the Toronto Baptist Seminary. My guess is, I don't know it, but most people who two years ago wrote things like this, today have completely capitulated. It's a slippery slope. Today they're welcoming homosexuals and lesbians into their congregations as Christian brothers and sisters. I don't know that of this man. But this is a massive compromise that he's just floating there as a question. Could we not say that? Could we not join them in their rebellion against God and their deception and their lie and call men women and women men? Wouldn't that be the loving thing to do, the kind thing to do? Wouldn't that keep the door open for the gospel? Here's the problem is we don't join them in a deception to strengthen the gospel. Rather, we minister the law and the gospel. And the law begins in Genesis 1.1. The law begins in Genesis 1.26 and 27. Male and female, he created them. And if we're going to love them, we're going to minister the law to them and call them to repent of their gender rebellion against God and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and be saved and give them the hope, give them the hope that they don't have to stay in this sexual insanity and suffer in it. And you be confident. We're far too foolish ourselves because the world puts on this persona because the devil's a great deceiver and those who serve him are great deceivers. They put on this persona they're having a gay old time. They're having a fun time. The homosexual community is the most psychologized community on the planet. So-called LGBT youth are the most suicidal youth on the planet. Why? Because the wage of sin is death. Now they'll say it's because of Judeo-Christian constructs that make us feel shame. No, it's because their own conscience makes them feel shame, which is part of what I 
preach at the abortion clinic. I want to save you from your own conscience. I want to save you from the law of God. I want to save you from hell. I want to save you from the wrath of God. And so I'm here today pleading that you'll repent and confess Christ as Lord. And if you continue on, you're just going to reap the whirlwind every which way and then forever. Be convinced of that. They're not getting this abundant life. They've got pain and suffering, heartache. I mean, look at the rich and famous and miserable. They forgot that. They don't say that. They just call them the rich and famous. They're miserable in their sin. Can a Christian join sinners in their sexual rebellion against God and affirm it through the lying use of incorrect pronouns? No. Or made up pronouns even, these new ones, Z? No. This is a Romans 1 truth-suppressing, God-hating term. Joining them in their lie doesn't help them come to the truth. They don't just need the gospel. They need an uncompromising proclamation of the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to know why they need to be saved. And we need certain confidence that faith comes by hearing the word of God. And the scriptures make men wise for salvation. They don't need us to capitulate to their gender rebellion against the God they hate and their lies. Now, why do I go there? I went a little wider to come back to rape and abortion. We can identify with rape victims. And I always do when they say I've been raped. I say, that is terrible. That is terrible. And if it seems like it's been far enough from the rape, then I'll ask them about rape being wrong. If it seems closer and their heart is still pretty tender, then I'll just identify with them in that, and then I'll go to the child. But that doesn't make the child a criminal. That doesn't mean the child can justly be put to death. It still is murder with the child. And then you'll suffer the guilt of that murder. And I don't want you to suffer that guilt. You will suffer it. You're already suffering as a victim. Don't add murder into it. The child is always and only a blessing. It may be hard to see that right now, but the child is always and only a blessing. A child is a beautiful thing. And many mothers who have been raped go on to raise that child and find that God brought something beautiful out of something terrible. But here's something you need to know. When I talk to these women about rape, and I say, you know, I'm... So sorry that took place, and that was so evil. And I will join you in your conviction that someone should die. The rapist should be put to death. That is justice. That is right. And that would stop men from raping women like you. That holds evil in check. Every single time, with one exception to memory, every single time, the mother is appalled. She is shocked. She is angry. Often she'll turn on me like you hear about police showing up when a wife is being beat or a girlfriend's being beat. And he's there to rescue the woman from the man and suddenly the woman is beating on the police officer with the man. The woman sides with her rapist against me. So she's wholly committed to murdering her child. But when I bring the biblical reality that this is so evil, this rape is so evil, and they were just lifting up usually with you know, bleeding heart kind of terms, their, their suffering and how painful it was and how terrible it was to justify the murder of the child. But when I join them in that pain, and then I join them in a desire for, for justice against the perpetrator of that evil, suddenly we're not joined. 
they're holy against me. And if they could, they'd be on my back like that police officer beating on me. And no, that's not right. That's not right. And here's, here's tragic too. Here's a further tragedy. Many Christians would join them and say, no, that's not right. We're pro-life. No, no, no. I'm pro-child. I'm pro the protection of innocent life. But there are evil men who need to die. And some evil women too. And God's word commands it. It commands it to hold evil in check. But when we divorce ourselves from the God of Genesis 1-1 and start to decide what's right in our own eyes, whether we call ourselves Christians or call ourselves Big Bang cosmologist evolutionists, you have no moral ground to stand on. And so if you're a Christian and you don't uphold the death penalty for evil men, you have no moral ground to stand on. You've rejected the God of Scripture. You've made yourself God. You'll determine good and evil, right and wrong, and you've decided putting evil men to death is wrong. Thus, you're judging God himself, who put all of mankind to death, save Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their wives in that great global flood. And by the way, when you do that as a professing Christian, you're joining the atheists in their screech against God, who look to the Noahic flood and say, look, wow, he killed everyone, you say. Wow, even if that God did exist, he wouldn't be worthy of my worship. Well, hear me, God is holy and he is just. And when you reject God, you are utterly unholy and have no sense of justice. It's all relative. Every man doing what's right in his own eyes. It's your own proclivities, individually or societally. But you have no true standard. And you certainly cannot judge God. He is the lawgiver and judge. And so praise God for his revelation that brings clear law, thus clear morality, thus sanity that holds us back from all sin, including the sins of rape and murder. In Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17, we have the Ten Commandments. God's law, God's moral standard, God's blessing to mankind is the foundation of all civilization. And when we reject the God of Genesis 1-1, when we reject the God of Exodus 20, verses 1-17, through 17, then all of society unravels and children and women suffer the most. When you give up God's law, you, you give up humanity. You're not even a human. You're just an animal. You're just an accident, a cosmic accident. You devalue human beings. You strip them of their imago Dei. You make them to be cosmic accidents produced by a blind, uncaring cosmos that supposedly, ludicrously exploded out of nothing and then became everything. Stars, planets, planet Earth. And then uncaused life full of vast information contained in microscopic libraries we call DNA exploded on planet Earth, and over millions of years, you find human beings walking around, conscious, arbitrarily trying to decide good and evil without their creator and law giver. What is the result of that? Well, we have no true right or wrong, no true standard of good or evil. It's all arbitrary, and it keeps changing according to the 
evil dictates of men's sinful hearts. Thus, once society, at least on the surface, rejected fornication as shameful. When I was young, fornication, at least on the surface, was shameful. Not at the rock concerts, but outside of that, at least, you know, polite society, it was shameful. Uh, When I was young, adultery was definitely shameful. Definitely shameful. Like a firing offense, your career's over. Abortion? Oh, yes. Very, very shameful when I was young. None of these things are shameful today. They're boastworthy. Homosexuality? Lesbianism? Woefully shameful today. Again, boastworthy. Boastworthy. Put it on display everywhere. Put it front and center in Target and Walmart and Starbucks. Everywhere you go, all forms of media, all stores, in your face. But we haven't stopped there. Now, transgenderism, mixing sexual sin with a further rebellion of, of I'm, I'm not even going to pretend to be a man. I'm going to rather, uh, and I'm talking about a homosexual who's not behaving in a manly way already, but now he's going to throw off even the visage of manhood and pretend to be a woman and perhaps go much further and even have himself surgically mutilated. But wait, there's more because sin begets sin begets sin. And now these wicked adults, these perverse adults, want to justify their perversion in their claims that God created them this way or there is no God and I am just this way. This is what I am. I'm self-determined. They want children to embrace this. And it helps justify them and it helps them feel good about their evil deeds. And therefore they indoctrinate children. They poison their hearts and minds. They have these story times. They have these cartoons. They have these books I challenge you all, you need to go to Target, you need to go and look through their children's book section and you will find the books seeking to destroy our children, these lying, vile abominations there in the children's book aisles. And you need to be incensed, you need to be provoked like Paul in the Athenian Square and know that this culture, these perverted men and women, and it's not just the men and women who are actually engaged in homosexuality, lesbianism, and transgender. It's our entire society. They are perverts. They are anti-Christ. They're anti-God. They're anti-Bible. They're anti-child. They're child abusers. We have a culture of child abusers celebrating mothers and fathers, taking their children to these story times where perverted men in dresses read them books and flirt with them, putting these parades on and children out in the streets with men in leather dog costumes crawling around. What they're doing to these children is evil. Biblically speaking, theocracy, they should be put to death. In earlier America, they would have been put to death. And I'm not talking about vigilantism. I'm talking about there should be laws against such criminal behavior that hold it back to protect children. But today, our society universally is applauding I'm always shocked by some new subset of society, some new group or famous individual or individuals capitulate to it week by week, every single week. It is shocking how quickly we are plummeting to hell in America. And so again, rape is a good Christian apologetic because it's one topic out there 
that people seem to still say, that's wrong. And so that's a good place to start and say, why? Why is that wrong? And then to branch out to all of this sin that is swallowing up our neighbors and dragging them down to hell. Agree with them. It is wrong. But let me tell you why. And then it is so wrong that the law of God condemns it and demands the death penalty. But hear me, it demands in Deuteronomy 22, the death penalty for adultery. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband, a husband, they're married in the eyes of God, and a man finds her in the city and he lies with her, this is consensual, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife. And so you shall put away the evil from among you. This is not killing a woman because she was raped. Atheists want to twist the scripture to make it mean that. I don't have time to fully unpack it, but that is a twisting of scripture. This is a consensual, adulterous affair. And the death penalty is God's just penalty for that in the theocracy of Israel. The death penalty for rape. Deuteronomy 22, verse 25, a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her. Then only the man who lay with her shall die. Then only the man. You see the difference here? It's, it's distinguishing from that former situation, which was adultery. Now, if he forces her and lays with her, he, only he shall die because only he is guilty. She's a victim. Which, by the way, speaks to the baby too. Only he shall die. Verse 26, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. The young woman, there's nothing shameful on her. The shame is all his. The disgrace is all his. The evil is all his. Thus the punishment is all his. It's not hers. It's not the baby's. But you should do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. So it's just as if this man was a murderer. He's a rapist and he should die. That's the biblical worldview and it's a healthy worldview and it would protect our daughters from the atrocity that's taking place against them now. Now in verse 28, it goes on to say, if a man finds a young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed and he seizes her and lies with her and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give the young woman's father, 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. Atheists twist this and say, this is marriage by rape. No, it's not. It's marriage by fornication. It's not letting young men like Shechem use young ladies like Dinah, if indeed that that had been consensual, use her and then dismiss her, and now no righteous young man wants to have anything to do with her because she played the harlot. So it holds him accountable. He can't be a dog morally because he's going to be morally responsible and practically responsible to marry the young lady. So if he tries to woo her and lead her off alone and win her affections in that manner, then he's going to be required to then show up at her dad's door and say, I need to marry your daughter and provide for her. And that holds his sin in check and protects young ladies from becoming victims of such young 
wicked men. That is the marriage penalty for fornication, not the marriage penalty for rape. It stops fornication and the abuse of women. Atheists like to look, point to Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29 and say, look, you have to marry your rapist. Atheists twist scripture. Have you figured that out yet? <laughs> and, and you can go to atheist websites and they have scriptures like this and their interpretation of them for the atheist to throw in your face. And unwise, untrained Christians who never wanted to be an apologist in the first place, who never wanted to minister the law and the gospel in the first place, find themselves suddenly on their heels as atheists throw the word of God at them, twisting it. Now, we should be trained and equipped and ready to minister the word of God actively, not waiting for them to come to us, but actively going, therefore, to them and challenging them on these issues. The rape of Dinah. The problem of rape, the problem of rape is when an atheist throws it in your face and says, look, uh, this is condoned by the Bible. You can rape a woman and then marry her, force her to be your wife. It's no problem at all, actually. Rape is an apology for Christianity. It's an apology for the Word of God. It's a defense for Christianity and the Word of God because their God-given conscience still cries out against rape. And you can join them in that, but then explain to them that they have no justification for that God-given conscience Yet, praise God, because they are Imago Dei, even though they suppress it. They are created in God's image, even though they suppress it. They still know that rape is wrong. But why is it wrong, O unbeliever? Why is it wrong, O evolutionist? And if rape is indeed wrong, and it is very much wrong, then so is fornication, and so is adultery, and so is homosexuality. So is lesbianism and transgenderism and bestiality and the murder of the unborn or the born. Thus saith the Lord, the only lawgiver and judge. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may we stand on it firmly, resolutely, dogmatically. May we stand on it with wisdom and strength and courage. May we be messengers of your word to a people that are perishing without vision, without understanding. Having rejected you, they've descended into madness, Lord. May we throw out the life ring of truth and pull them to the shore of repentance and faith in Christ, that they, Lord, would not suffer wrath in their own conscience and the eternal wrath of you, a just and holy, almighty God, who they will not escape except through repentance and faith in your precious Son, the only Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his mighty name. Amen.